Howdy folks, Tom Barbelay here. I'm just going to release a whole series of bits of audio into the Biota feed before I leave for Australia. I think that's probably the easiest way to do it rather than doing timed releases while I'm in Australia. And uh, somewhat topically, this first podcast was recorded on Thanksgiving Day, and Gerald de Jung talks about his Darwin at Home project as it is currently and how he projects it into the future, which probably makes up for some of the audio that was cut in the last bio to live, so apologies again to Gerald, and hopefully this makes up for it. Eric Burton also features in this recording, and Eric Burton is currently hospitalised. Our thoughts go out to Eric at this time, and hopefully he'll get out of hospital soon, so he can resume his uh, amazing and lucid discussion associated with the biota development. It's really critical to have folks like Eric Burton in the feed talking about artificial life. I also wanted to give a slight update with regards to the International Society of Artificial Life's election. The election is going on currently. Please go to the Grey Thumb blog for more information. You have to obviously join the International Society within the, I guess what it is now, 55 days, but uh, 60 days from the date of posting on the Grey Thumb blog in order to participate in the elections. So if you're interested, please participate. I've had quite a bit of correspondence with some of the folks who are on the ballot with regards to hobbyist and industrial artificial life developers and also bringing together the academic teaching of artificial life, the core curriculum discussion, which has been wonderful. It's good to know that folks who are at least nominated for the International Society Board are thinking along the same lines. Let me take you back to Thanksgiving Day with a chat with Eric Burton and Gerald de Jung. Welcome to Biota Live. I'm Tom Barbelay, and this is a continuation of the Biota Podcast. For more information on the Biota Podcasts, go to B-I-O-T-A dot org slash podcast. We have our first caller on the line. Hello there, Tom. Hello, Gerald. Good to speak to you on this uh, Thanksgiving day. I guess for you it's just a, a regular Thursday evening. Yeah, that's right. So this is a slightly irregular show. I'm not sure when it will be aired, but I'm going to use it as uh, filler material while I'm traveling to Australia. So although it is uh, Thanksgiving Day um, and we are talking about what we have to give thanks for as artificial life developers, it may actually be aired probably in in January or or even February next year. But I was curious to get a kind of project update associated with what's going on with Darwin at Home currently. And if you're talking to folks listening to this podcast in January and February next year, what kind of exciting stuff do you predict will be occurring around then? It's a little hard to predict, unfortunately. I'm not getting the uh, sort of regular time to spend on it that I uh, had kind of hoped for, but uh, there's sort of too much revenue-generating activity that's possible right now, so I'm going to take advantage of it. That being said, I do uh, um, end off the day with the enthusiasm left to code in the evening, and I've been building the odd thing here and there, and then uh, taking an afternoon in the weekend and stuff, so I'm really, uh, I'm on the case. It's just that I was kind of expecting to have full days to work on it once in a while, but uh, that hasn't quite materialized. I'll probably steal one once in a while, but it's not going to be frequent. But in terms of where you are looking to, to take the project, you've had some discussion via the bias conversations, mailing was associated with it moving towards a kind of multi-participant online environment. I mean, what's your what's your view with regards to the future of Darwin at home? Well, that's uh, that's indeed what it's intended to become. At least I'm uh, I'm working hard to get it to. Uh, a state where it's, uh, you might say, a sort of a, a poor man's second life or something, uh, you know, uh, but then with, with a very different, um, you know, aesthetic to it and also with some form of evolution involved. 
And uh, the ideas are starting to congeal. It's starting to look like I'm, I'm, I'm really looking to find the sort of the smallest amount of work I can do to get something reasonable up because part of it is social. I mean, the um, one thing I just completed uh, and podcasted about this morning was I have a, a chat system working using HTTP. So that's going to be integrated into the program upon its release. So that means people will be able to, uh, you know, hang around with each other via the program. The whole thing is going to take place on the surface of a sphere. So uh, they're actually going to be walking on the sphere, whereas before the sphere was only used for like uh, sort of storage locations. But now they're actually going to be encountering each other as well, hopefully. I've been going through all sorts of uh, steps to build the building blocks for this process. Like, for example, being able to turn a Darwin at home body into bytes and then back into a body. And, you know, just having that uh, marshalling and unmarshalling working. And um, besides that, I've got the database uh, system working, with which stores the genealogy, so you can uh, trace back parents and ancestors. So these are all just sort of building blocks. Uh, I've got the um, the sphere scenario where you can where you sort of arrive at the planet and then descend to the surface, and then you can travel around the surface. Uh, I've also got uh, bodies appearing on the surface. And um, I've got them building using the blind watchmaker reading from the binary genome. So there's a whole bunch of building blocks in place. Um, the challenge will be to make the last steps to uh, get something out that sort of resembles, you might call it a game, because um, it'll involve, of course, more than one person. And if I'm, if I'm able to do it, I will have, um, like you'll be sort of putting your evolved creatures uh, in, in battles against other people's evolved creatures, and part of the challenge will be to dedicate the time on your PC to perform the evolution to get the most talented uh, bodies to uh, to fight your fight. And um, there's there's one essential element as well that I'm definitely going to be able to integrate probably from the beginning, even though the rest of the scenario is probably not quite live yet. But the idea of taking snapshots is in Pauvre because uh, that produces such a lovely uh, rendering. And what I'm going to do is have the server um, continuously taking snapshots, so effectively compiling uh, a, seri- a, a, a bunch of movies uh, in parallel very slowly. So they're going to be storing snapshots of what's happening, and I should be able to compile those into movies. So I want it to become a real movie-producing machine too because, as you know, that really is a medium that, uh, that catches hold. We, we now have quite a full site at uh, imdarwin.org, right? Oh, it's, it's, it's getting there. It's getting there. I mean, hopefully by the time folks listen to, um, you know, this podcast in the future, there'll be quite a few more. Um, but I think a, a number were recorded at a, a recent Graytham Silicon Valley meeting. So I'm waiting to hear back from Al Lundell, obviously, over the Thanksgiving period. Email seems to take a, a little longer and, and wait in intros a little longer. Uh, but my hope is that I'll have between half a dozen to a dozen more, I am Darwin's from Greytham Silicon Valley alone, and certainly I'll put the word out to the Greytham Boston folk that they may uh, consider following the same uh, process. But returning to what you were talking about, I can't remember whether it was one of the, the last versions of Fluidium or one of the early versions of Darwin at home, but I remember a version where people could save their um, particular forms and I can't remember whether there was a comment or voting structure, but there was certainly a way where the forms could be saved and attributed to, to various creators. Do you remember that technology specifically, and is that something that you're 
thinking of, of moving into a, a constantly moving store of these saved creatures? Would they be wandering over the, the sphere versus just kind of in a, in a holding library pattern? Is that your thinking? Yeah, I mean, the, uh, the way it was, uh, in, that's actually the uh, Build Evolve version, which is still online. I think it still works. I haven't looked at it for a long time, but I think it's, uh, it works as it always did. And uh, it's the one that presents uh, a graph of fitness, and you can uh, have a lot of fun sort of watching the graph sort of jump up and then level out and stuff like that. And uh, what I had there was a kind of a folder mechanism, you know, just sort of your standard tree-structured uh, folder mechanism with uh, the added extra of being able to sort of store bookmarks to your favorites. And um, I also had uh, set it up so that there were a number of favorites available uh, you know, as soon as you start up the program, even if you hadn't signed in. And uh, so that was uh, that was sort of, you know, straightforward file system-like. And uh, for for the uh, the new program, it's got to be completely different because uh, your creatures will indeed be um, running around the surface and uh, hopefully um, getting into trouble and, and getting attacked and attacking and, uh, and stuff like that. So it's intended to be somewhat uh, of a game. Like I said, the whole time, each creature will be sort of carrying a, a camera behind them, which films what they do, and these will be able to turn, be turned into MPEG movies afterwards. Um, and the whole while, people can chat with each other. So this so, may be uh, quite a dangerous question. You've, you've described battling and, and making movies of the various battles, but is there going to be a, a mating and mutating component to it as well? Yeah, um, mating I'm not sure about because um, I haven't necessarily needed it up till now in Darwin at Home, so I might be an option. It depends on a number of things uh, that, that develop. I mean, the thing, uh, there's still some, some serious development between me and something that works uh, works well right now because, and maybe by the time people hear this, it's completed, but um, I have to figure out a way to do the, um, the, the behavior of the creatures, or I'd like to figure out a way to do that with, the uh, blind watchmaker code so that you know you're reading instructions and as a result contracting muscles it would be nice to have that mechanism used as well for behavior i mean it could always fall back on the way i did it up till now with darwin at home with with springs in you know each each spring uh, deciding on its own and, and sort of the genome integrated into the body itself but i'm going to see if i can do it with the blind watchmaker so it's like the genome uh, you know do, doing the puppeteering and uh, the evolution component of this will be um, not what you might expect. I mean, if, you, if you're thinking of uh, evolving complete creatures that are deciding what to do and evolving strategies and maybe working socially and stuff like that, that's not uh, where I want to go, at least not for starters. I'd have to have some probably some other people involved to, uh, to make it uh, something like that. But for now, I thought there's, there's an advantage to uh, sticking with what I've already done to some degree, so it's, it's familiar enough that I can do it in the limited time that I have. Um, and also, um, I know if I have a strong interest in creating the brain of this thing myself, what I'd like to do is have people be the brain. So essentially, you tell your creature where to go. You, you sort of click on a, on a destination, like, um, like in those strategy games, you know, like... Um, command and conquer sort of things, you know, you point at something or you circle something and then all your, all your little creatures go that direction. So the idea is that you sort of steer your, uh, your Darwin at home body around and uh, also probably give it the goal of like, you know, if you, if you picture, if you, if you see another creature in the neighborhood and it seems to be one that you could probably uh, defeat, 
then um, the idea would be to sort of point your creature at that creature and give it, uh, you know, some time on your PC to evolve the ability to walk in that direction or to turn that direction and then walk in that direction. So uh, the idea is to have it, you know, acquire its um, motor abilities uh, with a human at the helm. And talking of collaboration, I know you were doing some work with Scott Schaefer previously. Is that continuing on? Is this what the, the Blind Watchmaker Code fundamentally became? I think uh, Scott has uh, has gone back to uh, working for uh, for more or less full time these days. As far as I've heard, he's sort of taken a break once again from from development. It's hard to maintain, of course. You know, when you have to go back to uh, spending your whole day coding for someone else, it's it's a little uh, difficult unless you're insane like some of us. Testified. Yeah, definitely, definitely. So the topic uh, for today is is what to be thankful for, and you've touched on a number of these uh, components just in your discussion associated with uh, Darwin at home, and I mean particularly the the time component, the long-term nature. I mean, you've been through Fluidium, through Darwin at home, you've been developing artificial life for, what, roughly 15 years now, maybe 12, 15 years, that kind of time frame? Yeah, that's uh, that's about it. Yeah, I started with just uh, experiments with uh, with geometry back in the beginning with uh, you know springy structures. I was thinking in terms of uh, Buckminster Fuller and and engineering and building things. And it's only later on that it turned out to be something uh, more you know applicable to uh, artificial life, and that turned out to be a lot of fun. So it's yeah, it's been a long haul for sure. Yeah, I think hey, if the... you want to if, if you want to know what to be thankful for, I would say uh, number one is the internet. Because uh, you know this this kind of stuff is uh, sufficiently esoteric that uh, it's uh, a little difficult to find kindred spirits in your in your neighborhood. Certainly, I was talking to Eric Burton uh, last night. He's posted occasionally on the Biota Conversations mailing list, and it was a fascinating discussion that touched on a number of topics, including uh, George C. Williams. I'm not sure if you're familiar with his work, but he was an inspiration. Um, to uh, Richard Dawkins, but also uh, was an instigator with regards to Timothy Leary. And it's an interesting then, if you hear Timothy Leary's um, Cooper Union talk in, I think, 1964, it is basically the selfish gene in in speech form uh, coming from George C. Williams. It's fascinating the kind of folk who are part of the artificial life community and certainly through things like Biota Live and the Biota Conversations mailing list, we have a, a, a group of sometimes like-minded, sometimes not like-minded individuals that can kind of congregate in an electronic form and put out these these crazy ideas in some regard. But I'm mean, returning to the the idea of time as being a something to be thankful for, a fundamental advantage. I mean, I think. From your development, you've concentrated very heavily initially on uh, both Buckminster Fuller's work and Dawkins' work. In addition to those two, uh, you know, clear uh, polymaths that have touched a number of aspects of uh, contemporary thinking, I mean, have there been other writers and thinkers that have impacted your work? Well, definitely uh, Daniel Dennett. Uh, I, I, I remember uh, being inspired by stuff from Arthur Kessler quite a while ago. You remember Arthur Kessler? Have you ever read any of his stuff? Um, familiar, familiarize the listeners and me quickly as well. 
Well, he had uh, he had uh, one of his books. I think was called The Act of Creation. It was one of these big big suckers. Uh, takes a while to get through. And uh, there was uh, another one. I'm not sure that uh, I think it was called uh, what's that two headed creature, uh, Greek creature, Hydra. Yeah, yeah, it was called something something related to the Hydra. Right. Um, but it was uh, it was about the holarchy, like the idea of uh, everything sort of being somewhere in uh, not necessarily a hierarchy, but uh, as far as you can tell, there's there's up and there's down. So you're just somewhere in a holarchy. In some respects, you're a whole, and in some respects, you're a part. And that's true for basically everything all over the place. So he uh, he explored the idea of sort of being a node in a hierarchy rather than looking at the whole hierarchy. It's just the stuff. idea of the gestalt as well, in terms of yeah. you being more than the sum of your parts. Yeah, well, what he's saying is, is that there are, there are two sides to everything. You know, there's there's partness and there's uh, there's wholeness. Certainly, certainly. I mean, I think this is an interesting part about developing artificial life that really you can draw from a number of sources in terms of how you come to creating your simulations and also what you then utilize your your simulations in terms of. Uh, future discourse. I mean, we've, we've had this discussion uh, periodically through the, the Biota Live podcast, Gerald, but do you see a time where you, I mean, you've talked to an audience of architects, for example, do you see a time where you talk to uh, an audience of potentially psychology or sociology or, uh, you know, a diversity of, of potential university students with regards to what you've done with Darwin at home? I'm not sure if it would go to the, you know, as far as psychology, uh, something, I mean, something along the lines of mechanical engineering might be interesting. Uh, I've been invited to actually to talk at a, at a skeptics conference in Budapest. So that, that will be in September of, uh, of 2009. That should be interesting. So that's a conference for, for skeptics. Um, now I don't know. It's it, it's it's hard to say what what actual academic discipline it's uh, related to because uh, you know it's 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 sort of a bit of everything and it's also sort of outside of the field in a way. Certainly, I mean I think this is a, a topic that you raised for a future bio live with regards to the idea of an artificial life curriculum, and certainly in my own thinking and particularly reflecting on this idea of the amount of time and also the amount of reading that has basically gotten you know, contemporary artificial life developers to where they are, it's very difficult to think of a, a single rigid discipline or even uh, a short list of disciplines that would be critical in order to develop artificial life. I mean, my own reflection is really that this is where time is critical, the ability to, to kind of pick and read and experiment and break and kind of tape back together I mean, this kind of, of narrative. So what kind of stuff will you actually be talking on at the Skeptics Conference? Oh, it's a long time away, so I haven't thought about it very much, but uh, I hope to be able to give a, a good demonstration of Darwin at home. Uh, the guy who invited me, it's, it's an academic uh, locale, uh, venue, and um, the guy who invited me uh, was also very interested in seeing how uh, perhaps some students at the university there could uh, use Darwin at home in their studies. So that might be an interesting uh, uh, entrance to uh, at least the Eastern European academic world. Fascinating, fascinating. And this is something that interests me with regards to um, 
the idea of time is that we are able, and you've described various components of, of Darwin at Home and Fluidium that are actually you know, medium-sized engineering projects, certainly for a single engineer and something that requires a, a long period of time of planning and coordination. I mean, I get the sense that you do maintain a lot of the older code that you've written with the hope that it will be usable or reintegratable at a later stage. Am I right in my, my understanding of this? Well, in the last few months, I've been really sort of uh, combing the beaches uh, of all the code I've had uh, built until now, and uh, and I've really been uh, just uh, stealing the good ideas and giving them a new form with you know the new stuff that I've learned in the meantime. Because of course, you know, you learn as you as your career progresses, and and I look back at some of the stuff I wrote before, and I think, okay, time to uh, review that a little. Um, but you know it's a good opportunity to uh, to review all this stuff, and I've, I've been actually able to uh, snag most of the good ideas that that have been uh, coded into previous versions and integrate them all into uh, Fluidium Core, which is a library that can be used. Uh, you know, just to create a shell around it is not very hard, and then you can do a lot of uh, a lot of fun experiments. I'll probably develop that even further, especially if, if, if people in the academic world eventually want to use it. They'll want to be able to plug in different uh, algorithms and different strategies and things like that. So I've been able to comb it for, for the good things, and, and the code has been left behind, actually, as it is for now, at least. I mean, I've been able to recycle the best ideas. Yes, as I sit talking to you, I have in front of me my... Um, library case of uh, CD-ROMs burnt over and well more than a decade and certainly containing a number of bits of uh, Noble Lake gems and as you say also discarded components as well. In, I mean it's certainly a question that Eric Burton raised which has been raised in, in previous Biota Lives in terms of actual project integration do you think that you know within the next three to five years some of the elements of the Evo grid will lead some of us to actually start integrating our projects in a more meaningful way? Um, well, you gave it a nice uh, wide time frame. Uh, if you say like three to five years, then I would say, oh, yeah, sure. I'm sure something uh, something will uh, will start to develop in, in that kind of a time frame. I don't see it really happening all that much on the short term. But... Um, and then again, of course, it might never happen. But uh, I think there, you know, there, there are a lot of opportunities, uh, and, and I, I have a sense that the number, the, the the opportunities are increasing in a way because we're learning a lot more about how to glue things together. And there's a lot more gluing happening with, uh, you know, things like um, dynamic languages, and uh, you know, it, it's. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of the English expression now. It's 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 really easy to uh, to cobble together a domain-specific language, you know, in something like Groovy or Ruby. So, you know, there's a lot of uh, uh, script kiddies who could uh, who could start doing much more of this stuff because at, the, at a certain level, it's all sort of scripting anyway. You know, it's 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 only at the lower levels that it really has to perform at at you know high high speed. Like for example, my son was playing with a game a while ago, um, RPG Maker, I think it was, and uh, it's set up so that you can build your own sort of humble RPG, and he was doing this with another guy, I think from Germany, and um, uh, you code the behaviors in, in Ruby. So, you know, that's a, I think that's a sign of the things, uh, a sign of things to come. Uh, there's going to be more scripting and more... Uh, 
you know, the, the, the tiny domain-specific language approach, I think, is going to be uh, more and more important. It's an interesting. It's an interesting question. I mean, certainly within the next couple of years, I would like to do some integration between Noble and and Polyworld, and that's primarily because they uh, have a number of overlapping components, but also they share relatively the same uh, language base um, in terms of C, C plus plus those kind of flavors. But I think I, I agree with you fundamentally that the ability, and this has been started with the, um, the Python collaboration projects and these kind of things, to uh, use the higher level scripting languages will actually produce a, a very interesting uh, series of, of new collaborations and new artificial life projects. You've talked a little bit there about the idea of computing speed and the fact that through these kind of higher level scripting languages and just the immense power of contemporary computing, a lot of the low level optimization that really was the, the stickler of those of us that started, you know, as you say, 12, 15 years ago, uh, is no longer really the case in terms of the, the new possibilities. When you think of contemporary computing speed, do you feel that you need to do any additional optimization? Do you feel you need to atomize your simulations or look at putting in uh, additional multi-threading or multi-processor or network processing or these kind of things in your code? Or do you feel that it will come for free through, you know, future or existing scripting languages? There's, uh, you know, a piece of software these days is made up of a whole bunch of layers. It's like a, it's, you know, ice cream with, uh, with on top of the cake and then, uh, you know, icing on top of that and, and, and then whipped cream on top. There's, there's all sorts of different layers. You know, down at the very bottom, of course, you've got the deep uh, machine code and the operating system. Um, on top of that, in my case, at least, there's the Java Virtual Machine, which was written by, uh, you know, a, um, uh, a merry band of freaking geniuses and PhDs and and you know all sorts of contributed work from all over all over Hell's Half Acre, so there's a lot of brilliance built into the virtual machine and and the same is of course true of of the the Microsoft offering which I just happen to not have experience with, you know and then on top of that you've got the sort of uh, the the you call it the managed language of you know with uh, with conveniences like uh, garbage collection and stuff like that and and on top of that you've got the really sort of uh, fluid languages, you know, your Python, your Groovy, your Ruby, uh, things like that, where um, where it becomes really a breeze to uh, to make uh, to make little little efforts in scripting, and that's you know the very very top of the the icing on the icing. You know, it's it's it doesn't have to perform very quickly uh, because it's sort of orchestration instead of uh, you know down deep code. So there's there's all sorts of levels. You know, the Javel virtual machine optimizes its brains out on 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 your code that you write. It's uh, you know when you start up the virtual machine, it starts optimizing, and and as you're running the program, it optimizes further. So uh, the hotspot compiler takes certain pieces of code and, and re-optimizes them and makes them even faster. And, and that can even help happen in multiple times, multiple occurrences. So there's all sorts of um, things going on at, at the many levels, and we're really getting that whole stack uh, built up nicely these days. And uh, it, it, programming has changed as a result. And at the very top level, you've got these, uh, these uh, dynamic languages, which... Uh, which are really convenient for the for the orchestration. I'm I'm thinking myself of uh, having the blind watchmaker uh, instruction sets be encoded in Groovy because uh, that's probably going to be quite easy to integrate into a GUI application. I could just uh, 
present as sort of an editor and you can, you know, it's all very uh, terse code in, in, you know, in many ways. It's, uh, it's very, very typable. So if I can have like uh, gene instruction sets coded in such a dynamic way, then uh, it opens the possibilities for going beyond what I was just describing where, you know, people are puppeteering to getting to a situation where, you know, scripts are doing some puppeteering and, and that would might, uh, you know, might interest people like my son, for example, and, uh, and it might open doors to, you know, academics as well. You can do all sorts of stuff, you know, uh, a domain specific language could, uh, you know, glue uh, um, a neural network into the rest. You know, it's, it just plays the glue role. So, I mean, thinking, I, I, my my thinking has gone down two separate tracks as he went through this this narrative, but I mean the idea of a domain specific language here. You're talking about a, an artificial life specific language fundamentally. Yeah, not not necessarily one. You know, uh, a variety of them. Do you see? I mean, for example, for 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 example, I might be able to develop a really you know it's, the the clue is that it's just so easy to develop a little. DSL, a little domain-specific language, but um, I might be able to create one that that makes uh, you know the building of an instruction set really uh, you know really brief and uh, and straightforward. It it, it becomes uh, becomes sort of the way to go. It's an interesting problem because I think certainly Microsoft um, is is currently trying to tackle this with their AI. Uh, and robotics um, group uh, that are uh, cobbling together a domain-specific .NET-compatible uh, AI and potentially into A-Life uh, specific language that they want to initially sell to folks that are developing robots, but no doubt in the future sell to other universities. Um, it, it's under the Microsoft openness idea as opposed to it being open source. But I think the other thing that has been echoing through what you're saying is... Um, I work with folks at Apple and folks at Intel, and I worked with the um, uh, high performance optimization group at Apple who gave me a short list of things that I should never put in Noble Ape if I ever wanted it to be considered for uh, for use with what they did. And I think my uh, current problem with Noble Ape is that there is a whole lot of very low-level stuff that was specifically designed and optimized for Intel processors, which has some advantage because they are um, still the standard processor in some regards. But I think it's an interesting problem because as with Brevet, as with uh, a number of these longer-term starting with C, C++ style simulations, I'm thinking of Polyworld here as well. The issue with regards to interfacing, and most contemporary GUIs are in this realm as you're describing, this relatively high level, uh, almost scripting language like interface. I mean, certainly Cocoa on the Mac is, is fundamentally like that, and I think in a number of the other scripting style GUI layout languages that folks would be using to create the interfaces to their artificial life simulations in the future. So I'm certainly very sympathetic to, to what you're saying. My question back to you is with regards to various physics, uh, ideas of weather, ideas of things that you may want to integrate in your simulation environment, which is still pretty well served in terms of a low-level, be it uh, SSE or some kind of optimized low-level uh, method for generating vast simulation environments, weather, physics, these kind of things. Do you see that as being something that would run in parallel and have some scripting interface, or would you like to see all of those components in, in a high-level scripting as well? 
There's certain things you don't want to do at at the scripting level. Like I said, it's icing on the cake. It's you know relatively uh, dismally slow comparing to what can be done at lower levels when you've either got uh, you know bytecode that's optimized or uh, stuff that uh, that you've personally hand optimized. Um, so there's um, I mean one one thing that uh, that I would love to have sort of access to, but I don't have the time to figure it out if it is possible at all. Uh, it, pr- it probably is, but I mean, the idea of, uh, you know, harnessing the GPU to do some physics, I'm sure that's been done. There's their websites about it and things like that. And that would, uh, that would make, uh, you know, that would open up possibilities for uh, doing a lot more physics than what I'm doing right now. Uh, so that would be an interesting approach. Maybe somebody in the academic world can take that on as a as a project. On the other hand, of course, you lose the uh, the the flexibility that you have when um, when you write in something like uh, Java bytecode because uh, you know you're sort of coding on top of a blanket, and the blanket can be laying on top of uh, you know an Intel machine or a PowerPC machine or whatever the hell else. Uh, so it's it's sort of like it insulates you from the from the hardware level, which I've always thought of in terms of artificial life. I've always thought of that as a as a survival trait. Yeah, in some regard, I I agree with you. I mean, I think the the low level stuff that I do with mobile ape is um, specifically compiled for specific users. Um, but I think uh, I mean, there's, there's an interesting. Hey, you kind of you kind of have to be ready to discard that sort of low level stuff because you know mm-hmm. the, things will. Things will change. Hardware will change. I mean, not discard it, but I move on to the next, and and that can take a lot of effort. In, in some regards, yes. I mean, I think what I've tried to do with Noble Ape is is recycle the underlying methodology. Certainly, with regards to the movement from Altebec to SSE, uh, I used um, translation tools which Apple actually picked up internally, primarily because there was so much time that could be wasted in rehand coding SSE if I had already existing uh, Altebec code in terms of. Uh, you know, uh, optimization. But I think there's an interesting problem that there are still uh, components of computation and still things that you may want to integrate in an artificial life simulation. And as you describe the use of the GPU with regards to physics, I think there are a wide variety of, of exciting artificial life processes that the GPU is ideally suited to handle. I mean, my understanding, although it's a relatively high-level uh, understanding from listening to your uh, Darwin at Home podcast, is um, perhaps the blind watchmaker code could be ideally optimized to run on a GPU, um, like, you know, serial processing um, pipeline. And I think the ability to have this knowledge in the community means that we can create, uh, you know, these kind of... Uh, you know, future um, potentially high-level scriptable, but certainly still interfacing the the low-level uh, power of contemporary computing. I mean, I th- when I think about um, Noble Eight, but also things like Polyworld, and potentially uh, a, a vast number of agents of, of Darwin at home kind of uh, forms uh, eking their way across the sphere. I mean, these all become still heavy processing problems, and I think we need as a community to have an internal knowledge base associated with how we uh, actively optimize these kind of things. In terms of you know, my, to... my, my, my approach for Darwin at Home is, uh, is interesting on that front because on, on the one hand, um, I've got now a, a huge problem because I've got, uh, you know, I hope to have hundreds and hundreds of creatures crawling around a single sphere. You know, there's a, a strong advantage to have that, having that happen in one place, you know, rather than trying to figure out a way to distribute it because it's very complicated to uh, to distribute something like that. 
I'm going to, what I'm, the approach I'm taking is to go slow motion. So the idea is then that, uh, that every creature gets to experience a very small slice of time and then it's put back to sleep. So, uh, you know, the, the server can just, uh, just, you know, stroll around from one to the next and pick them up and give them a little time and then put them down again. So that's, that's the way I'm uh, taking care of the, uh, the computational issues. And this fits into your idea of film rendering as well, because, I mean, obviously if it's doing, um, you know, if, you, if you're already doing um, slow time slices, you can be utilizing some of the time to do rendering as well. As you're talking about something that is fundamentally kind of client-server um, distinction, I mean, what, what's your idea with regards to the server, and is there going to be a separate server that does the film rendering, or will it all be done on the single server? Yeah, well, film rendering is something you would like to do. You know, it's it's attractive to do that in a distributed fashion because it's a lot of a lot of work to just to get a few films. Um, I've had my machine running overnight uh, a number of times. You know, when I was generating those renderings, I, I know that it's uh, computationally intensive. Nice to distribute that, but I haven't figured out a way to do that in a way that I can uh, you know make it easy enough for people. So instead, I'm just going to have this um, this process that that gives them all a little time slice. What it's going to do is give them give them a time slice, take a picture, and then put them back to sleep. So uh, the server will be generating. Just uh, I've, I've decided to use sort of like the iPhone format, uh, 640 by 480. So these are small images, and um, and yeah, I'm just hoping that it's not. Uh, you know, imagine the thing just sort of uh, creating one snapshot a second. That's the kind of pace I'm thinking of. Certainly, certainly. And in terms of um, the size metrics, in terms of the uh, kind of processing that you're in, uh, expecting to, to be performing, do you have a sense of the number of forms that will be strolling over the sphere and do you have a sense of the, the kind of uh, server interaction that the, the users will have? Uh, well, I have, uh, I'm, I'm, I've got to have you know, several hundred uh, at least uh, strolling around the sphere. I mean, the beauty of a sphere is that they uh, they can't help but encounter each other because there's just nowhere else to go. So they, you know, even if you walk in one direction, you'll eventually uh, encounter somebody. Um, I don't want to so interrupt wanna... you, Gerald, but we, we have another caller on the line, so I just want to bring in... Hello, second caller. Hello, second caller. Oh, hey. Hey. No, hey, this is Eric Burton. Uh, Hi, Eric. Good to talk to you again. Well. No, I I know I know I I heard the I was hearing your show again from a few minutes in and I thought uh, I thought I would just call and try to say hello to to Gerald DeJong. I uh, I saw his Darwin at Home video and he's uh, he's doing very good work right now. Thanks a lot, Eric. Very good work. What I was hearing when I phoned is the kind of uh, the kind of crazy heavily parameterized stuff I I was discussing. You know, I mean, I was thinking earlier if we could have. Uh, MMORPG designers, I'm sure none of them have tried evolving the scripts that, for instance, drive NPCs and towns around on their day-to-day activities just based on how many meals they eat and, you know, an energy level and running billions of them around uh, in towns a day. Yeah, well, Eric, this, this is... Uh, ...behaviors instead of writing them by hand, you know? Yeah, it, 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 Eric, this is, this is interesting in the context of uh, the approach that I'm taking with uh, the blind watchmaker because, um, the, you know, there's... Yeah. Uh, uh, the um, the idea of evolving a script that sounds pretty 
pretty scary in a sense. Uh, you know, you can't you can't really imagine yeah, somebody uh, some process sort of accidentally writing writing script code. So what I've done is I've sort of turned it around. I've uh, made it so okay. that there the inst- the instruction set the instruction set of possible instructions is uh, is coded out by a code by a programmer. Hello. And um, and the, uh, the the actual script is is written in binary. Ah uh, ah uh, yes no um kind of written out by hand in a uh, sort of a binary format eh. Well, it's not written by hand. It's written by a random number generator. But uh, so the idea is that you can you can create an instruction set. You can say what's what's possible, what can be done. But uh, that's where you have to stop with the blind watchmaker. You have to say, okay, well, here's the instructions. This is what's possible, and then you hand it over, and the um, the actual you know randomly generated genome uh, pushes the buttons and, uh, and turns the knobs. Various forms. I mean, even a uh, even a non-Turing complete instruction set may be able to uh, solve still most problems uh, in an arbitrary sized program. It isn't always clear. It, it it depends, which is why we have really a great deal of, uh, of leeway in in encoding these these uh, genetic codes. But at the same time, like we were discussing yesterday, I see I see some virtue in having sort of a neural architecture that is explicitly defined. Uh, even if you had a copy of uh, the one that's there at birth so that the parent's learning isn't passed on directly to the uh, children, which would have an impetus then for communication between parent, parent and child. I think that uh, I think that you could have a genome for the phenotype and uh, some aspects of the behavior, reflexive aspects, and then uh, and then a brain, and then a brain as well, which is defined separately. I think that I think that is a, uh, a compelling notion. I don't know if it's where we're going. I don't know if it is. Well, what do you think? Uh, well, I, I can imagine uh, a process whereby a neural network is built by the genome. Genome, and then a brain that is actually a few megs, and uh, it constitutes. I mean, uh, rather than a genome, which is a few megabytes. I mean, honestly, because then when you uh, then when you breed these creatures, you can be like co- copying a brain, just copying while you'd be copying a big block of data rather than generating it. Then you can apply a few mutations, just a randomly generated offset, and, uh, and have, the, uh, have the genotype-to-phenotype evaluation done in a great hurry compared to that. And they can, uh, they can be disproportionately massive brains like the uh, intelligent life on Earth display. Uh, I think it makes a lot of sense. All the creature structures, I don't know, would become really big. I know a lot of people right now are still using logic or, uh, or code, machine code for uh, controllers. Uh, like like we discussed, but I think some some of the uh, some of the neural approaches are promising as well. Naturally. So Eric, if I could ask you a question, um, which really I should put to to all the folk that call in, and particularly who want to to participate with with Gerald and myself, if you um, if if some terrible accident befell Gerald and you acquired the Darwin at Home project, with in terms of a kind of time frame and stepping, how would you integrate what you've described in, in Darwin at Home? Well, it's so hard to say. I mean, I don't know if these creatures have, uh, have a controller, if they have sensors at the, uh, at the vertices or what, but, uh, but I think they could do they have, brain. They have no sensors. It's some kind of a brain, you know, so it's like, okay, this is the time when, uh, you know, if, if the other... Uh, 
if all of my feet hit the ground, you know, then I'm no longer in a canter. This kind of thing. And then we can, uh, and then you can really do like what's been done with, uh, with I think it was Bree, where they're chasing balls or running some things, and uh, have a neural aspect in there. I think that I think Bree has that. I don't even know if I'm thinking of Bree or or if it. Uh, Are you thinking of Fram sticks? That sounds more like Fram sticks than Brevet from my own thinking. But Brevet does have a lot of the um, early uh, Carl Sims components, and he had light followers and things in the blocky creatures. So it could be a hybridization of Framsticks and Brevet there. Yes, I am thinking of the work Carl Sims did. You get to see the swimming creatures and whatnot. It probably was. Um, I thought he was working with some third program I'd forgotten. It's difficult for me, keeping the application straight. Uh, at the beginning, it was a little like being a kid in a candy shop, seeing the work that had already been done, because I could, I've been coding for so much of my life, just programming and programming, and it just seems like one of the richest applications you could, uh, you could, you could apply yourself to. I wanted to make a card counting algorithm, I remember, a, a decade ago. I was like, I'm going to make a program, you know, does not play blackjack. It uh, figures out how to, how to beat the dealer. It's got a, uh, some things, some genome that determines this behavior based on, you know, which card you've seen and various ways. Uh, I hadn't really been into any of the literature, but uh, these kinds of applications have always stood out to me because when you think about it, it's like, well, yes, you know, that could, uh, that could go anywhere. But again, the cycles haven't always been there, really the, uh, the RAM. I might be building a dual CPU box soon. I think many, many cores. The core from thread is where we have to go. Certainly, certainly. And you, you're talking to me very loudly here in Las Vegas. My wife regularly... Uh, tells me that I should use artificial life for card counting, so it makes a lot of sense. Um, but in terms of, um, it, so I mean what you're saying Eric is that you'd like to see sensors as being the next step in what Gerald's doing and certainly in what Gerald's describing, particularly with regards to, to multi-agents, you know, down at home, forms wandering over a sphere, I mean there needs to be some kind of sensors in that, surely Gerald? Well, uh, I, I sort of uh, feel like I'm uh, killing two birds with one stone here, in a way. And it's sort of, it, in a way, it's a cop out. In another way, it's uh, it's it's a good way to make it into a game. I mean, the idea of um, several hundred creatures competing with each other on somebody's server somewhere, and uh, you know, and some of them learning how to do this, and and, and that's all real well and good, but it's not very involving for the for the audience. So um, I would like to have something where people sort of meet each other and, you know, that there's uh, some reason to go back to the, to the server after you've been once. And um, so what I've decided to do is make the people into the sensors. So, you know, if you, when you decide on the strategy of your creature, where it should go and what it should do, you are effectively, you know, looking around the neighborhood and making decisions. So you are the sensors. It saves a, a hell of a lot of programming effort. I don't want anybody to underestimate that unless they want to come and work with me on the project to uh, to build that part of it. But uh, I consider that to be a major challenge, and uh, and I've decided to avoid it for the time being. Have you looked at Framsticks at all, Gerald? Uh, not in any depth, no. You know, games with a... Exactly this is the social networking aspect built into it just to get you to label and trace images to train various algorithms. This would really, uh, you could make people be the overseer function if it was fun enough. That kind of uh, continues to bootstrap the thing from place to place and really identify the behaviors that otherwise you might not uh, even be able to see in order to code the, uh, the code to watch for. For unattended runs, it would really change the idea of the unattended run. 
both of the team as spectators and judges. I'm sorry. It's an exciting idea. So is that your view, Gerald? Would you have would you have uh, active participants, almost players, and then spectators, or would all spectators be players? Or how how do you see this? Um, well, the way I want to do it, uh, it's it's. And it's different than anything I've seen up till now, so I'm not sure. Uh, you know, it's it. This is all sort of uh, uh, on the edge of what might be possible. So I'm not, you know, I'm not speaking out of certainty at all. But the idea is this: the idea is that um, the the world is operating at a very slow rate of speed. It's like uh, time travels very slowly on the real world. When the client logs in, they get. Uh, when they descend to the surface, they get a segment of the world downloaded to the machine, and uh, that segment includes their creature. And they start giving their creature instructions, and what this creature is effectively doing is it's exploring all of the possible futures for the next several seconds, and that's it. So they're all just, uh, you know, you're, you're, it's experimenting and experimenting and adjusting and adjusting and adjusting and getting better and better and better, just as just like the Darwin at Home programs do right now. But um, this is all just exploring the, the potential very near future. And then when uh, the evolution has, has proceeded and some instructions are sort of uh, emerging to, uh, to get the job done, only those instructions go back to the server, and the server, the creature on the server, just continues its very, very slow motion life. And uh, hopefully, in the next day or so, it will start traveling in the direction that you've taught it to go. So, in terms of possible worlds, is it that the user selects the the uh, possible transition, or is there some internal fitness function that the, the that makes the the selection for the user? The way I see it is that the user just sits there and says, uh, I'm here right now, I want to go there, and I want to consume that creature. And then uh, on the client, you know, it explores all the possible futures and keeps evolving its genes until it gets the ability to travel to where you want it to go. And then those instructions go back to the server, and hopefully it will trundle in that direction. Meanwhile, the person uh, behind the creature you're attacking will receive an email with a snapshot uh, 640 by 480 of the situation and uh, be motivated to log in and start teaching their creature to run like hell. Yeah, on their cell phone even, a page, any of these things, you can uh, you can involve people if possible, just reach out to the interested human associates uh, in, in place of the higher, uh, higher cognition uh, that these things might lack. It makes a lot of sense. It's a uh, what it does is obviously uh, people who uh, people who have neopets, neopets, and this kind of thing would probably prefer to. Uh, it reminds me of the technosphere or the bio uh, cyber. Now, techno uh, technosphere is, is what you're talking about. Yeah, that's uh, the project in London. They were at the Digital Biota Two back in 1998. Ah, uh, yes, they are one of the greatest. Uh, um, I wouldn't even say fossil records of, of uh, artificial life history. It's a great disappointment that that source code or even more of the formative ideas from that are, would be available in the public domain because I think it would benefit all our projects now if we could have access to uh, even high-level hypers associated with that work because it was just so phenomenal. The stuff I'm doing right now is actually uh, you know, quite a reflection of, of what they were doing in a way. I mean, they had... Uh, 
their creatures had wheels on them, and it was sort of a you know a very different kind of environment. It didn't really involve evolution at all. But there's a lot of aspects of it that I'm sort of adopting in a way. It wasn't a window on the world, but they would uh, they would move around, and you would get emails if your creature managed to breed. Uh, there wasn't a genome that mixed up the parts, and really it was uh, kind of converging on an ideal combination of parts and placement in the world. Uh, I, I don't know how long it ran, but that was a uh, that was a good uh, a good really early indicator of possibilities. I feel like uh, I feel like they could have given the creatures in in, in spores and genomes of some kind, just phenotypic extrapolation. I remember elephish, and I thought that was what spore was about when they were doing procedural animation where it was you would get a fish, it would generate a genome, and then the phenotype would be extrapolated from it. And if you wanted to, you could uh, crunch CPU time into uh, an animation for the fish, pre-rendering, which you can put into a tank. Uh, but indeed, I don't believe uh, I don't believe the creatures in the spore come in different shapes and sizes at all, only kind of are generally scaled. I know in the fins, too, they had some of this technology, but I'm really thinking more, uh, even some mutations can occur to change the overall body plan. I mean, this is not, not in the scope. Uh, and it, it could have been. It could have been. It's uh, 2008. And, you know, so that's more. Uh, you know, that's what I'm doing. I'm. I'm. You know, the the uh, body shapes are going to evolve from from generation to generation, and the body behavior will evolve during a will evolve during a lifetime. And uh, you know, I wanted to uh, um, find some way to give people a reason to return to the to the site after they've, they've seen it once. So um, the way I'm going to be doing that is, uh, you know, tossing out the odd uh, email, hopefully uh, not interpreted as spam. And of course there will be opt out options and everything like that. It's, uh, but, but uh, it, it seems to me like a cool idea to, uh, to be, uh, you know, to receive an email with a picture from your, uh, your creature, your sort of Tamagotchi friend on Darwin at home, because uh, it's in danger or something like that, and then you know you might you might have to sort of rush home from work to uh, fire up the PC and evolve a solution before it's too late. And if it's too late, you know you'll get an email that uh, informs you of the passing of your your creature. Well, I like Eric's idea as well. I mean, I think it lends itself per- perfectly to to mobile phone applications or Facebook or these kind of things as well. I mean, I think. The email is just one of the mechanisms that these uh, kind of interfaces give you with regards to um, communicating with people. So, Eric, I mean, you sound like someone who would be ideally suited to work with Gerald on some of these components. This is a, a project that interests you with regards to either instigating or collaborative work. Well, you know, I, I was really impressed with the Darwin at Home interface when I saw it. And I thought if, uh, if there was just kind of a more intuitive way contribute obviously more people would be interested uh i think if you can give as many people uh as many people in the world uh, as you can a uh a sort of a window into the lives of these creatures and a chance to uh chance to have input in uh in scoring them and uh and ranking them and uh you know variously blessing or condemning them i mean uh turn, turning them uh you know turning them over if they are uh, in fact stuck on their back this kind of thing, just so there are people in there, uh, it would be really a, a whole different world. Obviously, if uh, if you had a substantial number of griefers or something like this, 
briefers and trolls, uh, then there would be a evolutionary countermeasure and an arms race wouldn't sue. It's uh, a very rich environment you're describing. So I, I think people would be interested. I'm interested. It's, you know, an amazing project. I don't work in Java. I know uh, Darwin at home is in Java. I just recently started working with uh, C++, C++ a little. And that is, uh, that is different from C, which I find unforgiving. Python is my favorite favorite programming language right now. Well, this lends perfectly into what Gerald was saying, because it sounds like there's uh, potential for a large part of this interface to be written in a language like Python. Yes, yes. Well, I haven't done GUIs, etc. on Python, but Python is, uh, is very good for script. It's got, a, it's got a, just very few, very powerful data types that you can... Uh, just, just operate on, on great swaths of data in a, in a great hurry, you know. Um, well, there are there are a number of uh, famous uh, you know packages that that uh, are scripted using Python. For example, Blender, I believe, has always been scripted by Python. So you can you know create three D animations and stuff using uh, using Python. Python is very good. Obviously, as as a Perl person, I heard for a long time that Python people didn't have a lot of the same problems, and ever since I, I migrated to it. I found I only still invoke Perl on the command line. Uh, most programs I want to express in script form, I'll, I'll write in Python now. That, it, it's that good. So the, the topic for today's discussion was what we have to be thankful for. And the next to my dot point, somewhat ironically, is communication. And I think this in part comes through our discussion uh, yesterday, Eric, with regards to this idea and this certainly is my own narrative, too, that uh, as an artificial life developer, one can feel very isolated prior to things like the Internet and podcasts and websites and these kind of things. But the ability that we have to communicate quite internationally and get these relatively abstract ideas out to the, the small number of the population the world over that is actually interested in these kind of things is, is really very phenomenal and something to, to give thanks about. I mean, in terms of your um, overview, Eric, and I know you talked a little bit about this uh, yesterday, but, I mean, you have a very high level and very detailed knowledge of the artificial life community, which appears you've, you've gotten through these podcasts, through uh, the Biota Conversations mailing list, various blogs, things like that. I mean, you are the, the poster child of the active consumer of artificial life-related information. Can you describe a little bit more about that process and, and the kind of insights that you've gotten through consuming these various kinds of media? No, it, it was very easy for me, you know. Uh, the mailing lists are out there for anyone who wants to know what the people who are working on the stuff are talking about. And uh, yeah, that's the format I've always enjoyed. It takes me back to, uh, to Usenet or indeed to, uh, to the BBS Echonets where uh, you, would, you would, address, uh, would address people. But it was a, it was a, a public message. Um, just a lot of fun. It's kind of a format that I kind of fomented a style of thought that, that I've, always, I've always been comfortable with. With him. Uh, you know, so there I was like, uh, this is a good way, this is a good thing for this community to have because uh, I was interested anyway. And gradually I sort of figured out where I was. Uh, it took a few months, two, three months. It didn't take long, honestly, to acquaint myself, I think, with the, the, uh, the backbone of, uh, of the, the, the work that's out there. They, uh, uh, you know, you, you mentioned, uh, I don't know if you mentioned Scott Schaefer just then, but I was telling him I want to... I want the creatures in Rippling Loops to be able to sense a color on each of their faces if they want. Read a color from it, sky, ground, you know, edge, or a, or a color of another face that they can see. So they would have kind of line of sight. 
IR. Uh, since they have these little jets, maybe you would then see them like uh, forming a forming line of sight maintenance uh, course corrections while they exchange data, this kind of thing. But only again after after really really long runs. Uh, I just I wanted to get that out because uh, it doesn't seem to me like as much sort of a toy feature as, uh, as it could be. Uh, it all it all changes. Uh, I said before if we had if our workstations were maybe a hundred times more powerful, we could really then see something happening. I don't know if we get so much out of uh, out of ten. Hundred times more powerful. If we were working on average, you know, with 100 gigs of RAM, then uh, 200, 200 gigahertz. That that uh, brings me to another thing I'd like to be thankful for, and that's Moore's law. Do you think it's? I mean, this is. Sorry, I, I just want to say a quick. I mean, do you think it's our? It, then the the burden becomes our ability to actually utilize the processing power that is there. Well, absolutely. I mean, I think the hardware is finally in place for a lot of uh, disruptive new applications, and just it takes the will and the wherewithal to put them together. Uh, it, uh, you know, people people with the know-how, kind of the experience with these systems. I, I've just uh, I've been working on this stuff for a long time in various directions, and uh, I, w I wanted to devote myself to something that's for the good of humanity right now. You know, I've been uh, I've been on Boink a little. Uh, doing doing some work there, uh, just to uh, just to help. They they uh, are doing amazingly right now. Amazingly, distributed.net. Certainly, I was I was into you know in the 90s, uh, just because of, of uh, what they were doing, open supercomputing, like that. It brings uh, brings to the table a whole new range of uh, simulations outcomes. I just calculations and computations you can perform. And I mean, I'm not sure if you heard the section of, of today's discussion where Gerald and I were talking about the uh, need for kind of low-level uh, processor understanding. But I mean, Gerald, what's your to summarize your thinking with regards to the need to utilize or understand the low-level power in order to get more out of the systems? Oh well, that's. Uh, I mean, when when you look at Moore's law, you you realize that uh, the the if you expend a whole bunch of effort in that direction, then you're uh, you're going to be maybe you're just you know just a little bit ahead of the curve as far as what's possible because uh, hardware keeps improving in speed. I think one of the things we have to get used to is. Um, working on a level that's uh, at least slightly abstracted from the from the, from the actual hardware, unless you of course want to be on the absolute cutting edge, and uh, you know it might be fun to code a certain kind of artificial life at, at a really low level, but it really would limit the complexity of what you could build. So I'm I'm more interested in uh, um, you know structuring something code-wise that uh, is readable enough that people can really dig into it whereas you know if it's very if it involves all sorts of esoteric CPU knowledge then uh, you know it's for a particular audience you know it might be wonderful for a certain embedded application or something like that but uh, in general it's, it's hard to learn from something like that because the more obfuscated the code is uh, you know the more optimized the more obfuscated it's an interesting problem because, I mean, certainly, and this comes out to my chapter in Dick Gordon's book, but I think there needs to be a new simulation science that comes out of contemporary computing, and it will give you the ability to, to write on a high level if you want to write on a high level. But I think the, um, obviously, because this is in the public domain and this is something which I've 
uh, talk to my friends at Apple about. But when the Apple engineers first uh, um, demonstrated Noble 8, they got a, a 16 to 32 times speed improvement with regards to what you're describing in terms of low-level tinkering. But I think what interested me from that development was an optimization of my own mathematical thinking, which then uh, trickled on to, um, you know, whether what I was doing on a, a high level too. And I think the kind of simulation methodology that we need to have going into the future, particularly with the ideas of, as you're describing, um, maybe a, a genotype simulation running in parallel to what Eric is describing with regards to a, a neural network running in parallel to what I like to see in a simulation environment. I mean, these things can use the same kind of mathematical components and can be further optimized through the GPU. We just need to have uh, some kind of discussion, some kind of understanding, and, and it all comes back to your next topic, Gerald, that you submitted with regards to the curriculum for artificial life, the idea that there are a, a new group of uh, artificial life-hungry minds that are coming up currently through the high school and entering the university system. And I think this is something else that personally I give a lot of thanks for, that we are um, in some regard educating this, this new generation. I mean, certainly the stuff that Jamie Matthews and others uh, email me with regards to how they've used the bio to podcast the resources our various projects it's all very positive with regards to the uh, next generation of minds that will be looking at these kind of problems i mean is this your sense as well eric i remember reading a david suzuki book on genetics which hooked me and at no point in there did he mention you know uh, computation i mean obviously this this was in the 90s it was uh, the, the secret of life and uh, it didn't come up it didn't come up i never connected uh, and I never connected, you know, even when I heard about the uh, Human Genome Project, they'd begun to sequence that. I mean, the, uh, the connection to IT was not was not clear for me. I, I knew someone went into bioinformatics at, a, uh, at an adult education center in maybe 2002 or three, and that was the first time I heard of the field specialized to uh, connecting bi biology and uh, and IT. Uh, specialized about that? Well, honestly, A Life A Life approaches this from the uh, from the opposite direction. Uh, you know, we're producing producing genomes and uh, adaptations and whatnot, and really interrogating the process through which uh, the kind of uh, self-organizing patterns that uh, thrive on Earth emerged in the first place. If we can generate completely different ones, completely distinct ones, then we will get uh, insight from the contrast. And on the other hand, if we can faithfully simulate the life we see here in some way, create something like it, then again, we'll be in... Uh, be in a position to profit a great deal. And what's your feeling with regards to the next generation, Gerald? Is this something that you're thankful for as well? I mean, Mitch has given a lot of inspiration to the podcast, both musically and also in terms of ideas. You have a very primary contact with the with the potential next generation of artificial life enthusiasts. What's your thinking? Yeah, well, I, what I was thinking just now was um, just, just the notion of... Uh, you know, in, in a way, like a, a rock band where you've got the different people playing the different instruments and coming at the music from a different angle. Like the singer thinks about different things than the guitarist, and the guitarist is busy with different things than the drummer. And what I just imagined was a, a sort of an artificial life team getting together where you've got, uh, you know, people with uh, with different uh, approaches coming in from different angles but still working with sort of the same you know playing the same piece of sheet music in a way because uh, because they share a, a purpose so you know your artist and your uh, philosopher and your uh, <laughs> and your coder or two 
you know, getting getting a, a diverse band together to make a an artificial life project. That was just what I was thinking about. I don't, you know, things like that might happen in the future. It's it, it it's going to be one of the things that are that um, you know, plays the role of um, focus for inter interdisciplinary work. You know, the, the, when I was at uh, university, I, had, I encountered Buckminster Fuller's books, and I showed them to my math friends, and they said, no, that's not math. And then I thought, well, I'll show it to the artists, and the artists said that it wasn't art, it was math. So they, it was somewhere in between the two, and I think artificial life is one of those, you know, a flag that you could get several very different people uh, standing under to, uh, to do interdisciplinary uh, efforts. Yes, I always thought Buckminster Fuller was organic chemistry, but it could have just been because I grew up in the in the era of Buckminster Fullerene as opposed to uh, as opposed to his earlier architectural stuff. But I think it's an interesting idea, this metaphor of uh, the being a single piece of sheet music that we're all playing different instruments to, or maybe each project is a, a individual piece of sheet music that we bring together, I guess, and, and things like Biota Live in terms of some kind of concert of ideas. Um, I think it's a, an important point to make that, you know, artificial life developers don't have to be coders. They can be uh, philosophers, they can be instigators, they can be uh, people that come from other disciplines and uh, want to motivate our particular kinds of development. I mean, looking back over the past 15 years of your own work, Gerald, You've obviously had contact with a lot of different people, a lot of different disciplines. You've talked about the architects. You've talked about meeting Dawkins at Biota 2. You've talked about observing Biota 2 with a sense of wonder. Are the folks that you haven't mentioned that have had an impact on your work and have also been very receptive to what you're doing? The folks I haven't mentioned... Uh... Well, there was... Uh, I mean, the, the initial inspiration... Uh came from a community of Buckminster Fuller uh, fans so that was uh, that, that's where where a lot of it was uh, you know sort of gestated we used to get together on a weekly basis and have chats about uh, about geometry believe it or not um other than that um I don't know it's uh, you know if you if you think for example about uh, that project we were just talking about technosphere that was uh, that was an example of uh, of a project that involved uh, several disciplines together, and it's you know it's true for every game company as well. They they uh, they have people of completely different disciplines working together. Um, I remember it being somewhat like that at uh, CyberLife when we were at uh, Digital Biota Two. You know, we were sitting in the bar with the different people from CyberLife, and they were just uh, you know it was a really diverse crew. I think this is more you know in a way the rule. And certainly, I mean, what we're trying to do with artificial life seems to bend very heavily onto a number of other people's uh, fields of interest. I think this is part of the uh, issue with regards to communicating, but also popularizing. There have been a few good kind of uh, meetings that have appeared through the years, meetings of strange attractors for, uh, for engineers and whatnot, minds who are into this kind of thing. But uh, me, I know I've always been in a bad situation working very much in a vacuum. I mean, uh, I wasn't able to own my own modem until BBSs were almost gone. I spent two or three years on rural boards before I'm finally moving to a small town when they were finally eliminated. And I was just thinking to myself, if I'd gone to that small town first, you know, I could have uh, met some people at the end of that era who would have become the kind of contacts I'd wished I had because I'd never met anyone in that town, only one, two, who remembered anything about boards, and by then it was too, too late. 
And uh, those were, I, was, I mentioned BBSs earlier, of course, with that, and Usenet, this kind of thing. Uh, there have been uh, certain media that have really appealed to me. Just brought out, uh, brought my ideas out, I thought, where it was a space where people could uh, see them. And that was always very useful to me, and especially when I could uh, achieve any form of collaboration, because uh, uh, I find I've done a lot of things for first principles. And in terms of this idea of collaboration, I mean, I think this is something that I'm thankful for in some regard, although the kind of collaboration, I mean, when I list the people that I communicate with here, very few of them I've actually met physically. In fact, uh, a majority of the people that I work with quite passionately associated with a, a majority of my developments, I haven't actually met. I mean, it's one of these curious things. I meet Bruce Damer. I've met Bruce Damer, I think, once or twice, uh, but those two meetings, you know, have been extended kind of um, passing on of information and social stuff. I mean, he's met my wife. I haven't yet met Galen. But, I mean, it's quite overwhelming that uh, a majority of this community is now completely remote and isolated in some regard, although the Grey Thumb meetings are slowly uh, bringing more like-minded folk together, and I find it quite inspirational. I mean, although I'm in a, a city with a population of one and a half million, um, you know, artificial life isn't really part of the Las Vegas community. However, it, there is a huge community out there that's available and accessible electronically. I know, Eric, you've talked about your own wishes to, to get together with a, a Grey Thumb community in your area. Um, and certainly we talked last night with regards to, to folks in kind of broader Canada and uh, up to Montreal and uh, obviously uh, Calgary and um, Manitoba where Dick Gordon is. I mean, the, the Canadian artificial life community is relatively well uh, spread. Um, but certainly there is potential for regional conferences, and this is something that I passed back to Dave Kerr uh, a year or so ago, that if you folk had a, a Canadian A-Life conference, I think a lot of folk would uh, would come up from the U.S. and potentially, I mean, Gerald has a familial connection to Canada and, and may even choose to return. So, I mean, I think there is potential uh, for small regional conferences to bring the community together in a physical location. Um, I mean, Eric, Gerald, feel free to jump in at this point. Yeah, yeah, I know. I know what Eric's talking about. It's a, it's a very hard thing to do. I mean, the only real way you can uh, you can meet uh, the right people is is via via the net, via the internet. You know, and uh, if you're lucky enough, you get to visit one once in a while. And like you were talking about, Tom, there's, that's uh, that's the best we've got. But you know, fortunately, we've got all sorts of communication media if we want to if we want to use them. I mean. Um, I'm a Canadian living in the Netherlands, and we we talk on a regular basis. Uh, if we really wanted to, we could see each other's faces on on Skype. So uh, you can, you know, if you if you make the connections, you can you can use them, even if they're electronic. Although, you know, I guess I I, I would like to go to a, a, a you know a Biota whatever five I suppose it would be now, um, you know, and 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 have us all together in one room. That would be just totally wonderful, but uh, it might not be within the realm of possibility. I think this is an economic uh, component as well. I mean, certainly the history of the Biota conferences came at periods where uh, the participants in the community had the necessary spare cash to uh, go to a conference or they had sponsorship or they had employers that were receptive to them going to this kind of conference. And I mean, this returns to the idea of the artificial life winter that... Uh, 
you know, the circumstances currently don't necessarily lend themselves to um, large biota conferences or even biota conferences where a majority of the community would, would participate. I mean, what I've said to Bruce is if we have another biota conference, it needs to be uh, heavily sponsored and subsidized in such a way that we could get, um, you know, a, a majority of the community or at least a majority of the participants in this very podcast together, I think, um, it is possible there are locations where this could take place, but it will require a certain degree of firstly time lead-in, but also the potential to um, minimise excessive costs associated with that kind of meeting. Um, I certainly was interested in what was being discussed with regards to the potential of some kind of get-together in London. But in the short term, I mean, do you see the building Graysum movement as being a, a positive thing in this regard, Gerald? Um, I, I was just thinking right now, what, what would Dick say? And, and I, I bet he would say, uh, well, why don't we meet in Second Life? Yeah, I think the, my concern is always that the, the casual components of what these kind of meetings uh, you know, bring the idea of, as you say, as you've talked about previously with regards to the bar meetings and Biota 2 and the ability to actually see people and just have casual conversation. I mean, when I reflect on the, the two meetings that I've had with Bruce, uh, the nicest stuff has actually been just shooting the breeze with regards to a wide variety of topics that have nothing to do with artificial life. I mean, I think Bruce in particular is is sufficiently the polymath that there are so many venning overlaps and so many things that when I talk to Bruce on the phone, you know, our, our biota-related discussion is usually around 20% of the conversation. I think this is what's, you know, fascinating and interesting. And certainly through a passive way, I know a lot of us use and abuse Facebook and YouTube and these kind of things as a means of keeping in contact with people in a, in both a, um, you know artificial life related and also social manner, but I think the ability of having these kind of conferences is really the downtime, the breakaway components, and I think the my own personal experience with regards to Second Life leads me to think that the interface that I have through these podcasts is probably considerably better than the interface I would have through something like Second Life. Um, Eric, I mean, what, what's your thinking with regards to Firstly, what we're doing through these podcasts versus something like Second Life versus a conference. I mean, you sound like someone who would ideally like to have a, a grey thumb on location or even better, a biota conference on location. It would be amazing, obviously, to have a, uh, a meeting sort of on the ground in Toronto where people can go and exchange, like, uh, even just runs, you know, just uh, just parameters and, and organisms and, uh, and various outputs and inputs. As well as uh, applications, you know, would bring a uh, bring an air competition to the thing for people to uh, people who are working on on uh, on projects that uh, have uh, any overlap or no overlap to uh, to become friends and want to compete. Uh, this kind of thing is a uh, really important, really important. Eric, it can be achieved. I've I in Toronto about uh, the possibility of starting a meeting here. I think at at the U of T, the University of Toronto, and that that might be something we can. Uh, Follow up, follow up on about uh, later. I mentioned one or two projects to him that I did not finish. Uh, <laughs> I didn't get back to him yet, but that was a month or two ago. I've been, I've been busy, but I plan to, uh, I, I plan to sort of go through. I, I know, uh, I know a few people who, who you know, while barely aware of the field, would, would come, sort of come to that as well. Hey, uh, Eric, if you're in Toronto, I, I'm going to be there uh, for the for the holiday season, so we could meet. Try to send me. Uh, an email at some point. Uh, it's, my address is on the list, so you can send me an off-list email. And if the, uh, I think I'm on the, uh, 
uh, Darwin at home with. As a matter of fact, so you can yeah, tell me if you want. We can try Great. to. But that that would be fun. Here's another idea because I've been I've been looking at the Dorkbots community in parallel to what's going on with Graysum and there seems to be a solid overlap between what could happen with the Graysum chapter and the Dorkbots community. I know the legacy associated with the creation of Graysum came through um a local game developers meeting that was, was held on a on a regular basis and there were a component of the game developers that liked talking about artificial life. So I think we could almost have a parasitic Graytham or a series of parasitic Graytham movements that came through things like Dorkbots. I'm pretty sure there's a Dorkbots in, in um, Toronto from memory. I know there's one in Montreal. I'm pretty sure there's one in Toronto too. So Eric, this could be a good uh, a good venue for you to start talking about artificial life for, uh, if not completely like-minded, at least a sympathetic crowd. Um, yes, really any, uh, anywhere, you know? It would be good to give a presentation to a, uh, a Linux users group about the, uh, the Unix software available for this kind of work. You might, uh, you might snag a few minds that way. I mean, a lot of the Unix software is fairly serious, sort of uh, laboratories for this kind of work, where you can uh, re really see the primary principles just sort of expressed and proven time and time again. Uh, a lot of the more complex models sort of uh, require some faith to spend a lot of time with unless you've uh, interrogated their internals very deeply, you know? Certainly. Yeah, I think there are, there are a number of parallel venues. I know we, we spoke yesterday with regards to the idea of computational spaces of actually having studios with a wide variety of machines interconnected, and certainly that's a central theme with DultBots as well. So, I mean, you may find the, the local collaborators that you were looking for in that light too. So with five minutes remaining, we, we should probably conclude the, the discussion today with regards to what we have to be thankful for uh, in terms of artificial life developers. Gerald, is there anything that we've missed? Oh, uh, well, we've, we've missed uh, you know, the, the giants upon whose shoulders we're standing. Uh, we should uh, be thankful for Darwin and Dawkins. And uh, also, I, I guess, a wide variety of other folks that have, have contributed to artificial life as well. I mean, I think certainly um, it goes back to Hobbes, as um, the Grace on Mailing List showed. I mean, there have been a wide variety of uh, philosophers that have contributed uh, various snippets. I mean, in my own work, and the likes of, of Bertrand Russell and Kant and a wide variety of folk um, prior to uh, Dawkins and some prior to Darwin even. Um, sure, and then, and then uh, we've also got, um, you know, uh, um, uh, Carl Sims and uh, Tom Ray and, uh, uh, you know, thank you for Jeffrey Ventrella. Uh, let's go on and on. Yes, I mean, when, um, when Eric was talking about the facial recognition, that comes through Jeffrey Ventrella's work in Gene Pool as well. I mean, I read his paper periodically to get new stuff, and he has a um, kind of racial, non-racial attractor that's based purely on the, the color patterns of the various swimming creatures in gene pools. So I think there are... Uh, yeah, Jeffrey is just inspirational. I think there are a number of people in the community that are inspirational to talk to uh, periodically. I also think of John Klein here because he's um, so humble uh, in, his, in his communication, but you get the sense that he has so many ideas that are, are instigated and come through um, through discussion. 
So, I mean, we're, we're very lucky in terms of uh, the, the wide variety of um, once contributors and current contributors that we have in the biota community. Anything else that you can think of, Gerald, to be thankful for? Uh, well, let me see. It just depends on how how it turns out, how it all unfolds. But uh, you might even want to be thankful for the financial crisis if people get more time to work on their hobby projects. Yes, I think it's a catch twenty two situation um, because <laughs> yeah, yeah. Ideally, I would like to see artificial life developers um, prosper through a, a new financial prosperity that doesn't. Uh, isn't uh, you know derivative traded and future destroyed? I think we have a, a great source of knowledge that could actually generate uh, new and exciting technology that will hopefully be uh, independent of uh, future financial fluctuations. Eric, with with just a minute remaining, do you have anything else that you think we should be thankful for? Oh, I I don't know. You know, I think automated trading is a very is looming very large on the horizon right now for a lot of people. If someone uh, if someone installs something standard on the OLPC laptop, or you can get a free a free account, you know, that you move some money into from your bank account and it starts to increase right away, it could actually end a lot of problems in the world. This is not so different from hill climbing. I think that's a uh, I think that's very very important. We we, sh- we should be thankful, you know, that this is happening at all. Very interesting. Well, I'd like to thank you both uh, for the opportunity to jam with you today. I mean, I think this is the nature of these extended biota lives that we're looking to get uh, folks such as Eric and Gerald together, and I'm looking forward to uh, the next couple that we have coming up. Our topic on uh, tomorrow will be a standard uh, biota live where we talk about the hobbyist aspects of artificial life. However, this will all appear out of sync with regards to what's going on. So, so thanks to Eric and thanks to Gerald for the chance to chat with you both today. It was a nice chat. Goodbye.